water. And treading might be an apropos word, an apt description for us, because uh, this is going to be deep stuff for us in Romans 8 for the next three weeks. I'm going to sort of set up this week and next week the sort of theological and biblical grounding for what we're going to talk about. Uh, in week three especially, where Tommy's going to come, I'm going to sort of set the tee, put the football on it, and, and Tommy's going to come and, uh, and, and kick it through the uprights. And uh, so... In my preparation this week, uh, I've been struck about uh, struck by how much there is for us uh, to talk about in Romans 8, and we're not going to touch all of it, um, but we're going to talk about some important stuff for us. It's of great relevance for the Christian life, and uh, I've been struck this week in my study by by how much there is for us. Uh, so as we dive in, let's go ahead and pray for guidance as we uh, jump into Romans 8. Lord God, we, we come to you this morning with open hands, desperately in need of hearing your voice. Many of us this morning, Lord, are, are starving, starving for a spiritual feast. We ask, Lord, that you would feed us with the timeless truths of your holy word. Aware or not, we are from all sides assaulted with sin and sickness and sadness and separation. So we beg you to renew us with your Holy Spirit as guide and counselor. We are begging for your undeserved mercy, for the undeserved mercy of your spirit to speak to our hearts so that we would encounter you this morning, so that we would become spirit-led witnesses to the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever been on one of those trips, one of those long trips uh, maybe camping, maybe hiking, where where you kind of felt like you'd never get out. I've been on a few trips like that. Uh, one especially that I remember, uh, I was in high school, about about sophomore, junior year, something like that, and uh, and we had a youth leader at the time who was like Mr. Old School, 1970s take them to the brink and break them down kind of uh, youth pastors uh, from the 1970s. There was one such trip like that for me in high school. We were in the deep woods of the Canadian wilderness uh, for an entire week. And, and this, this old school youth minister felt like if you're going to take them to God, if you're going to bring them to the place where they feel the need for God, you've got to break them down first. He did old school youth ministry in the kind of way that would you know, easily get people fired nowadays. Uh, you can't have kids cross the street without you know, having, to, uh, having to do a waiver and, and have the kids call mom. So, so this was sort of like youth ministry meets boot camp, okay? We were in the deep woods of Canadian wilderness, canoeing for mile after mile after mile. We did about 110 miles that week. 
And we were carrying all of our gear with us in those big military bags, the ones that stand up about like this, you know, that you have to haul on, well, haul on both my shoulders. Uh, And so we we would come to a dangerous spot in the river while we were canoeing, and we'd have to get off, carry both our gear and the canoe uh, for about a mile or so until you could get back in. Had to do that multiple times per day. Uh, My canoeing partner for this trip was named JB. And JB was that kid in youth group, that one really difficult kid in youth group, and uh, this is not an exaggeration. First day, we tipped our canoe 19 times. All of our gear, all of our canoe, all the way under. My patience was at its end halfway through day one of my week-long canoeing trip. We were in the middle of what was called the worst week of black flies in the last 20 years that the locals ever remembered. And if you know about Canadian black flies, they bite. They bite. And so, so if you didn't have a mosquito net on for this trip, you were bound to go home with uh, a bunch of, of bites all over your ears and your face. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was just miserable. It was a miserable week for me. I remember feeling like, you know, God, if this is how I'm going to die, I want to be ready. So um, I love you. I love you, Jesus. I was saying all these kinds of things, you know, in the middle of this week of camp. And uh, and for me, really, the worst part to, to top it all off was that for lunch, I'm not making this up. For lunch, we got six saltine crackers and cheese Whiz. Cheese Whiz. Cheese Whiz, that stuff, that so-called cheese in a can stuff, and six saltine crackers and water. So, so seriously, for five straight days, I refused my lunch. I refused half my lunch. You know, nope, <laughs> I'm good. I'd rather starve. That's kind of how I felt about it. So, so it was a hard trip. And while today, looking back, it sounds sort of comical, a little bit uh, silly, for me at the time, it wasn't comical at all. I honestly thought to myself at one point in this trip, okay, Scott, prepare to die because you may never make it out of this place. You may never make it out of here. I felt that kind of despair of being in the middle of absolutely nowhere, surrounded by bugs and and cheese whiz, no pillow, no mattress. I, I felt no hope for getting out of where I was. And while it's a little bit of a comical experience looking back, it's how I often feel and, and how I bet many of you feel when you think about where you are with your sin. Have you ever felt that way about your own sin? Like, am I ever going to get out of this mess? Like you're just stuck in it, making no progress, wondering how you're going to get past that sin. Wondering how you're going to go, go past that sin that continues to defeat you. It's that feeling of being in the middle of nowhere with no hope of making it out. Like your sin is just kind of like it's owning you. And you feel in your bones tangibly. I, I can't fix this. I, I don't. I don't have it in me to go past this. Maybe for you it's 
It's an addiction for you where the, the evil one is just gnawing at your soul time and again. Failure, failure, failure. Maybe it's lust that has, has dulled your heart. Maybe it's a self-righteousness that judges others. Maybe it's, maybe it's a cynical anger that lashes out at everybody else. Probably, for most of us, when it comes to our sin, we're the up and down type. We're the up and down type where at first you're feeling good. This is how I feel leaving every Sunday morning at First Christian Church. I've, I walk away from this building feeling like, okay, God, man, I, I love you. I am passionate about you. I'm going to live for you. And I'm going to, to live for you with passion this week and save seven souls, one a day. I'm going, to, I'm going to save a soul a day and bring them all to church next Sunday. That's kind of how I feel when I leave on Sundays. And then, and then I step into the car on our way to lunch, and, and the kids is, one of the kids is whining, and, and I'm remembering something discouraging, and, and, I, and I remember how much is in our checking account. And, and, and I think about my car that's broken, and, and all of a sudden, in the span of about 10 seconds, I, I'm the Tasmanian devil, and, and everything seems to have gone to pot, up and down, up and down. Victory and defeat. The Christian life, frankly, is a lot like that. And Romans describes the Christian life in those kinds of terms throughout. Romans 7 talks about this a lot. And in 7.15 it says this. I think we have this on the screen for you. In 7.15 it describes this, this up and down victory and defeat with sin. It says, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul understood this up-and-down battle with sin. And after, after a while of this life that's mixed with both victory and defeat, a, per, a person begins to wonder, a follower of Christ begins to wonder, am I really a believer in Christ? Do, do I have enough faith? Am I the real deal? <laughs> because, because I don't always feel like it. I know God, and, and I'm, I'm working hard to follow him, but I, but I, but I keep struggling with these, these things that hinder my growth, my progress with God. You begin to sort of wonder, what, what is wrong with me? That's how you feel in the Christian life a lot of times. Those are questions to which Paul responds with, with amazing truth. With amazing truth that he tells us about in Romans 8, verse 1. He doesn't quite say it this way, but he's sort of saying in this chapter, okay, <laughs> chill out, everything is under control. You know, you know God started this. He's going to finish it. Christ was on, condemned on the cross by me, God the Father, to bear the weight of your sin. And now you've got the Holy Spirit, if indeed your life shows it. So just let, let me fill you with me. Everything is going to be okay. He doesn't say it in those words, of course, but, but that's not far off where he begins in Romans 8. 
So we're going to look at the first 11 verses today and sort of lay out the theological, the biblical justification for Paul's awesome claim of freedom. His claim of freedom from the power of sin in our lives. Look at verses 1 to 4 here, where Paul describes that kind of freedom from condemnation. Look at verse 1. We're going to go slowly here in verse 1, and then we'll pick it up a little bit. It's a great summary statement for all of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. An amazing truth. If you're going to memorize something this week, memorize verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a, a summary statement for all of chapter 8. And uh, so it says this. There is therefore. Look at that word therefore for just a second. Uh, a quick little principle of reading and of, of biblical interpretation. You may want to write this in your Bible or on your notes. When you see a therefore, you always ask, what's it there for? When you see a therefore, you always ask, what's it there for? And here in verse 1, Paul is uh, concluding and summarizing his previous argument in Romans 7. Uh, especially 7, 5, and 6. We're going to look at those two verses here. He's summarizing in verse 1 his previous argument in Romans 7, 5 to 6. Turn back with me for just a second there, and we'll look at those verses. It says this, verse 5, chapter 7. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. While we were living in the flesh, it says... Circle that word flesh there because it's huge for Romans and the Christian life. Flesh is the Bible word for all of the ways in which we lived out sin in our bodies. It's more than that, but especially that. It's not just physical flesh. The body is not bad. The body is good. God gave us bodies. But the body is how we live out sin. So flesh is the Bible word for all the ways in which we live out sin. All the thoughts and actions, desires, behaviors. So verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. In other words, the law told us our sinful passions were there. Our law was there to tell us God's standard. The law, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, in our body, to bear fruit for death. Sin results in death. Living in the flesh results in death. Verse 6, but now, it's the same kind of argument he'll make in chapter 8. He says this, but now, verse 6, contrary to the fleshly life we used to live, when we thought that we could be good enough to fulfill the law, now we are released from the law. That's a huge truth. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. One Bible commentator says, because we as believers died in Jesus Christ, in baptism we die with him. It symbolizes that death. Because we as believers died in Jesus Christ, when he paid our sin debt on Calvary, we were thereby released from our moral and spiritual liabilities and our penalties under God's law. That's a, that's a little bit complicated. I'm going to read it again because it's an important truth that establishes, it's, it's undergirding this, this victory idea. When Jesus died at Calvary, he paid our debt of sin, which released us 
from our moral and spiritual liabilities and penalties that we did experience under God's law. Galatians 3 says it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. Under the law, God's standard of perfection, which none of us could ever meet, and frankly, by the way, which God never intended for us to be able to meet, we were condemned under that law. We, ha- we were cursed under that law. And Galatians tells us the truth that Christ redeemed us by becoming that curse for us. That's an important truth to undergird Romans 8. So back to 7, 6. He says, but now, but now, as opposed to then, and not future, but now, the current state is that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. And this is important. For the reason that, in order that, he says, so that we serve, that we live, that our, that our life going forward is serving in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way. We have a new way of living now, he's saying. The new way of the Spirit, by the Spirit, we'll talk about that more, and not in the old way of the written code or, or the letter of the law, literally there. He's saying that our life now, and he's going to pick this up in verse 1, our life now is empowered by the Spirit and not by our flesh. That's a huge and important truth. It's a huge and important truth for the believer in Christ. Because we're still fighting the flesh, some of us. We still think, we still operate, we still act out of our flesh as if we can do that. But the truth is that we can't. So essentially 7, 6, 7, 5, and 6 say the same thing as verse 1. We serve, we live now out of the new way of the Spirit. So now that we've got the background, the therefore in Romans 8, 1, where he summarizes what he just said in 7, 6, go back to 8, 1. It says this, there is therefore now, not in the past, now, not in the future, now, There is therefore now no condemnation. This is the huge truth of the whole passage. We start with no condemnation and we'll end up next week and in week three with no separation at the end of the the chapter. He says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just sort of camp out here on verse one uh, for a minute and sort of feel the weight of the implications of that awesome verse. Because of Christ's declaration of you as a follower of him, because of his declaration of you as righteous, based on Christ's perfect life for you, because God declared you righteous, you are no longer under the condemnation of, of sin. You're, you're no longer under that condemnation for your sin. No accuser because of the work of Christ on the cross. No accuser can justifiably stand before you and slander you as guilty under God's perfect standard. Because the work of Christ has undone that in his perfect life. You're no longer defined as a sinner 
You're now called saint. You're identified as righteous by the work of Christ. The Bible says that you are beyond the reach of the evil one to condemn you. That is, that is a precious truth that is at the center of the gospel for all believers in Christ. If we would just, if we would just feast on that one truth each day, we would love and we would treasure Christ in a way that makes everything else in our lives pale in comparison to the awesome truth of victory over the condemnation for sin. So Christ has taken on the wrath of God for my sin, for Scott Wakefield's sin, and now I stand victorious over the power of sin to condemn me. And so that beautiful truth results in verse 2. Verse 1 is justification. Verse 2 is the beginning of sanctification here for the Bible nerds. Here here in verse 2, we live in response to verse 1. It says this, For the law of the spirit of life, that's the new law, the new way, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the life of the flesh, the then, the before, resulted in sin and death. But, and here's a key to make sure you get, because Christ took the condemnation, the wrath of God, we are now set free to fulfill the law by the Spirit. That's the crazy part of the truth that Paul is teaching here. Because of the work of Christ, you are now set free to fulfill the law by the Spirit. In fact, God never intended the law to be fulfilled any other way. We think that that's how we were supposed to live. Like we're supposed to just have enough willpower to do what I know he tells me is good and right. Or what my mom told me to. Or what my, my Christian friends say is expected and good and right. That's failure too. That's the old law. You can't fulfill the law that way. This is a huge truth, and it's the blank in your sermon notes. And it's the truth that undergirds everything we're going to talk about next week and the week after. The Christian life is a supernaturally lived life. It has to be by definition. It has to be by definition a supernaturally lived life. So the life that we now live is essentially supernatural living. In other words, there are powers at work in the Christian life that are above and beyond our natural ability to live in a way that glorifies God. There are powers at work in the Christian life that are above and beyond natural, fleshly. Because frankly, you can't live the Christian life in the flesh. You can't do it. How long does that take us to learn? You cannot live the Christian life in the flesh by your own natural power. It won't work. We've all tried it. And all have fallen short of that. 
We know that that's an exercise in continued failure. It's in fact the law showing us. It's only by the work of God in us. It's the only way. It's only by the work of God in you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to change your affections for evil and sin into a passionate affection for good and godly living. You can't change your heart. Only by the work of the Spirit in us, only by a supernaturally lived life with the Spirit of God in us to change our hearts and affections, can we fulfill the law by the Spirit. And that was God's intent all along. That was God's intent all along. He talks about the circumcision of the heart, which, which means that we can now functionally fulfill the law by the Spirit. So he continues to build on this theme and describe it here in verses 3 and 4. He says, God has done, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Notice he sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Christ himself did not live by flesh. He had flesh. He had a body. That body enabled his perfect life to count for us. That's a huge truth. If you don't get that, you don't get the gospel. Christ coming in the likeness of sinful flesh and yet living perfection enabled his death to count for you. Otherwise, it wouldn't. It enabled his perfect life to count for you. For the reason that, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, Christ fulfilled it perfectly so that you can live it by the Spirit. So that you can fulfill it by the Spirit. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Christian life is not manipulated to be good and right. It's not external goodness and rightness. It is always the heart of God becoming part of us by the work of God in us. So, so now in verses 5 to 11, Paul says that there are two kinds of people in the world. Two kinds of people in the world. Those controlled by the flesh, those controlled by the spirit. And the Christian is now free from the control of the flesh, free of being controlled by the power of sin. That's not the same, by the way, as saying that we are free from the presence of sin, period. It's freedom from being controlled by the power of sin. Freedom from the presence of sin doesn't happen until eternity with God. But freedom from control by the power of sin is an awesome truth of the Christian life that should bring us hope and encouragement. It's, it's a glorious and awesome truth to know that you stand redeemed by Christ and are free from the power and control of sin. Does that mean you struggle? None? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that the power of sin to condemn you doesn't condemn you. That's an important distinction. 
Look at verses 5 to 8 here. Here's the contrast between flesh and spirit. He says this, For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. He's obviously setting up a contrast here. Verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. And peace. It's a mindset, he said. He's, he said that many times here already in verses 5 and 6. It's a mindset. It's not magic. It's not a pill you take. It's a mindset. 1 Corinthians 2 says that believers have the mind of Christ. For the mind that is set on the flesh, verse 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We've all experienced that failure to be able to please God in the flesh. We bump up against that failure to please him in the flesh time and again. Look at the contrasts that, uh, that Paul makes here in verses 5 and 8. There, there are contrasts all over here. I want to show you here with a, uh, with a graphic that I believe is coming up here. All right. It sort of shows the differences between the flesh and the spirit. Now, those who live according to the flesh, what they think about doing is they think about their, their mindsets are on the desires of the flesh. Their mindset is on the desires of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, their minds are set on the desires of the spirit. The ultimate end for those of the flesh is death. It leads to death. The ultimate end for those who live according to the spirit is life and peace. That is those who can fulfill the law by the spirit, not by our perfection, but living through Jesus' spirit and his perfection. The attitude toward God is hostility for those who live in accordance to the flesh. The attitude toward God for those in accordance with the Spirit is, seek, is receptive to him. There's a difference between hostility and open, receptive, the Spirit of God coming into your heart to change you. That's all it is. The attitude towards God's standards for those who live in accordance to the flesh is, I will not submit I'm not going to submit to God's law. I am my own law. Romans 1 talks about that. Those who live accordance to the Spirit, they seek to fulfill God's law. They can't do it perfectly. They never will until heaven. But by the power of Christ on the cross, to make up for that power of sin in us, we are able to seek to fulfill God's law. We're going somewhere really cool here at the end. The ability to keep God's standards, unable. Unable to do it, those who live in accordance to the Spirit, able to submit to God's law. In other words, I, I can't in my own power, but because of the work of God in me, I love what's good. I'm a debtor to his goodness in me. And so I want to live like he leads me to live. And finally, the question of can you please God? Those who live according to the flesh, they cannot. Cannot do it. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit are able to please God. And this, my friends, is a humongous, humongous truth for the believer in Christ. What it means 
what it means. Is that those who have the Spirit of God in them are actually able, finally, (laughs) to please the God of the universe. Something we experienced failure (laughs) in our ability to do. You, if you have God living in you by the Holy Spirit, when you received Him, when you became in Christ, verses 1 and 2, you became able to please God. So contrary to the, to the accusations of the evil one and your self-loathing and the guilt that you feel for not being perfect in practical terms, Contrary to all of that, it is the Holy Spirit that makes you able to please God. So so God, the creator of the universe, the infinite, holy, almighty God, accepts your imperfect life if lived by his spirit. That's precious truth. So, So don't gloss over words like, by his spirit that you've heard a thousand times before. It's huge to say that the Christian life is a supernatural life lived by his spirit. It doesn't mean there's some magic pill. (laughs) In fact, the practical application of Romans 8 is that there is not some magic pill. It means you live supernaturally. Your fallible attempts to live a godly life are joined with God's perfection, which more than makes up for and breathes goodness and mercy and love into you, and therefore he is pleased. Look at uh, verses 9 and 11 here. Pick up there. You, however, in contrast to the flesh, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. The difference isn't whether you've prayed a prayer or sat in a pew or sung the right songs or even if you've been under the right water. The difference in a person's life is the presence of the Spirit of God that lives in a person. And so he gives the opposite example in verse 9b. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You can't be in Christ if you don't have his Spirit. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Because of the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness, but Christ. He says so in the next verse, verse 11. If the Spirit of him, Christ, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul says that that God does the animating. He, He animates our mortal bodies through the presence of his spirit living in us. And 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 you've got to get this. Unlike everything we are taught from birth, you cannot kill sin in the flesh. You can't do it. You cannot manufacture enough stick-to-itiveness or willpower or goodness to defeat sin by yourself in the flesh. It won't work. Only Holy Spirit-led supernatural living can do it. And that won't mean you're perfect this side of heaven, but it will mean that God, and this is where we'll talk next year, next, next week, that God can change your heart and wean you away from that love of evil to doing what is good and what is right. 
So the question we'll talk about next week especially is, so how do I get there? How does the Holy Spirit wean me from evil to loving what is good and right? The answer to Holy Spirit-led living that takes us there is not a magic pill. We'll talk more about this next week, but it's sort of like this. There was this, there was this family that was on vacation, on vacation to Tampa, Florida, and, and as far as the eye could see, there were orange trees on the way there. Orange trees loaded with fruit. Orange trees just, just everywhere, thousands upon thousands of them. And so they stopped for breakfast uh, on the way to Tampa. And, and Dad here in the family, Dad ordered orange juice with his eggs. And the waitress said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> we just don't have any orange juice. Our machine is broken. <laughs> so, so they're surrounded by millions of oranges, thousands upon thousands of trees. They had oranges in the kitchen, and they were garnishing their plates. The problem wasn't a lack of juice. The problem wasn't a lack of resources. It wasn't even a lack of know-how to get the juice. The problem, and this is where a lot of believers are stuck, the problem was simply they had become dependent on a machine to get the juice. For many, the power over sin is already there. It's already available right in front of their faces, but they're dependent upon someone else to do it for them, or waiting for some magic to overtake them and control them. We can be surrounded by the Word of God in our homes, in the back windows of our cars, but if something should happen to Sunday morning preaching and worship, all of a sudden we're without nourishment. All of a sudden, we don't have the resources for us. The problem isn't a lack of resources. It's not a lack of spiritual food. It's that many haven't grown enough to know how to get it for themselves. The problem of your continued defeat over sin isn't lack of resources. It's not knowing how to get it. For yourself, the Word of God makes orange juice in our lives. The regular assembly of the saints, of the body of Christ, to worship, it feeds the spirit and it starves the flesh. Meeting together in groups to study the Word and to pray, those behaviors animate the Holy Spirit in us. That spiritual food. We talk about the three C's. It's easy to understand. The presence of the Holy Spirit animating your life happens in worship, in cultivating a place where you're growing with God and with other people, horizontally with people in fellowship, vertically in your relationship with God and in the Word and in prayer, and by serving, by communicating the gospel with what you do and with what you say. It's an easy formula. <laughs> There's no magic pill. 
the answers to, to how I love God aren't magical. They're answers we already know. We've been told since we were VBS kids. The question is whether we will cooperate with God's available resources. That's the real question. Father in heaven, we have been hostile to the work of your Holy Spirit to change our hearts. At moments when we, we've, we've known we should be receptive, we have turned away. Father, we want to be open and receptive to your work in us. So that, so that by doing so, the work that Christ accomplished in his perfect life and his being condemned by you on the cross to become a curse for us so that that would work. Continue to open our hearts, Father, to that truth so that we would be people who cooperate with the available resources you've given to us to defeat sin, not fully, not finally yet, but, Father, those glimmers of hope by which you, you reshape our hearts and make us more like you. Encourage us. Father, continue to fill those places where we need you alone to demonstrate to us that you are God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.